We come to the end of this series of messages, Time Hop. Time Hop is an app that you place on your smartphone. It takes you back and looks at pictures or things that you put on social media and reminds you over the last couple of years what you did during that week or that day. And this study has been in the book of Malachi, a book that was written, the last book of the Old Testament. So we're going back and we're looking at it and saying, this was written back then, but these truths still apply to today. And the truth that as God is writing this letter to Malachi and he's reading to his people, the truth is this, that we need to get ready for the end is coming. It's ironic, too, in many ways that the last book of the Old Testament and the last book of the New Testament both talk about future things coming. And so today we're going to unpack. It's God the Father looking. He's writing this letter to his kids, and he's like he's in the last paragraph, and he's getting ready to write, Love, Dad. Love, Dad. But before he gets to the end, he said these four things. It's as if a father's on his deathbed, and he has his family around him, his children. He's saying, when I pass, I want you to continue these four things. These are the most important things that I want you to do to continue to keep my name and our legacy in the name of Christ alive. And he's reminding him, you better get ready, because time is coming when these four things can't be done. But before he does come, do these four things. So we'll unpack that in a second. And over the last week, I've been grabbing, and each week I've been grabbing from my time hop what comes up. And here's some things that popped in this week in, in my journey this, over the last couple of years. This came up uh, three years ago. If you ever get a chance to go to Asia's Hope to visit our kids that you support, care for, and pray for. These are our Thai gals. You get in the back of a truck, and they're all the gals together. There's nothing like getting in there and having all these beautiful girls who've been rescued, who love Jesus now, your, your sisters or your, or your daughters, and spending time with them. You walk away filled with joy. Another thing that came up this week was had an opportunity when I was in Thailand. Actually, that's not Photoshop. That's a real tagger. Got to get in a pit uh, and a, on a snowy day. It wasn't snowy. It was a hot day. I got in with a tagger and a couple other. My son Josh got in there and a couple other ladies that did that too. But before you did, you had to sign this waiver. If you die, we're not responsible. <laughs> you laugh. I'm serious. That's what was there. It was in Thai too. So it could have said a whole bunch of other things. I just signed it, you know. Jim Green, Jim, you know, just, but how got in, took a picture. Um, but seriously, what a way to go. I mean, can you imagine, yeah, my grandfather, my great, how did he die? He was, he was in a pit with a lion. He was fighting them. He made it get really good, you know, 100 years from now. But anyhow, another photo that came up um, was, it takes a church. One year ago, this week, coming week, it was on, on TV, um, on the Game Show Network. Natalie Grant came here for a week with us, spent time, Hollywood came through, the director of uh, Richard Hall, who directed The Amazing Race, was here and filmed um, N- Nicole Blue. And uh, it was a great week with Natalie Grant. And if you were here that Sunday morning, you probably wonder what the world just happened. Uh, well, that's what happened. So that, that, took a, that was a year ago. It's hard to believe. Another thing that came up on uh, Time Hop this week, uh, two years ago, Isaiah and Anne were on a trip to Asia's Hope. And we go to a place where there's uh, elephants and you get to feed the elephants. And uh, they had a picture snapped off there. It was a, a great time catching up on culture. Um, one other one that, that came up um, two years ago, part of our team on a Sunday morning worships in Cambodia, and we were able to lead in worship on that Sunday morning. Uh, it was a great morning to, to stand before some precious kids that had all been rescued from all the campuses and to lift the name high and say, that's what redemption looks like. I could speak for hours about that, but I got something else. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in or turn, get your smartphones out and open up your Bible. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. 
And we're going to read verses 1 to 6, the last six verses. I always love the timing of God. And as, as we try to orchestrate things, he, he's up to something else. And it's, it's interesting as I look at the timing of the schedule, I had no idea that this would fall on the same time that what we observed some graduates today. It's just the timing of God. And that will make more sense as we get to the end. But stand up and we'll read Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it out loud together. Ready, read. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You may have a seat. It's God the Father writing this letter. And he's saying these four things. Do these things before I come. And because I'm coming, get ready. I'm coming back. And as he's coming back, the first thing he wants to remind us of is that earth is not your final home. But some of us live as though it is, don't we? We toil and we labor and we build and we buy and we, we, we construct and we continue to, to gather and collect. And we keep bringing more things to this thing called life on earth as if somehow this is all there is. And when in reality, it's all temporary. We can't take anything with us. And so God is saying to his kids today, to us, he's saying, remember, don't get too attached to the things of the earth. Because there will be a day coming. If you know me, there will be a day when you will spend eternity with me. So don't get too attached. Don't get too frustrated if this plan doesn't work out. Don't be too disappointed if you can't purchase that and own this. Don't be too worried if, if you don't get to marry her or marry him or you don't get to marry. Listen, this isn't it. What's to come is so much better, but be prepared because not everyone is going to go that route. In fact, he says in Psalm 39 and verse 4, he says, Lord... Remind me of how brief my time on earth will be, the psalmist says. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting life is. And so God is saying, as if a father had his sons and daughters around his deathbed, your days are numbered. Be very careful how you live. It matters how you live. Every choice that you make, every decision that you make, every person that you hang with matters. Listen, bad company corrupts good character. Make sure you live in such a way that you stand up in the midst of of your friendships in the community that you're in for Jesus Christ. And he reminds them that to live out your life well. It's a dad saying, you were made for more, so don't coast into retirement. Don't coast before this day comes. Make a difference while you're here. It's him whispering with a crackling voice, please, take the name of Christ with you. My time has come, I will pass, but you continue to live on and don't get too attached to the things of this earth. He reminds them to be a faithful remnant. And he also reminds them that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There will be a time when evildoers will be like stubble and will be like a furnace and burned up. 
And he says it will be like a furnace and every evil do will be like stubble and the day is coming to set them on fire as if the wood pile is stacked and people are ready to be tossed into it. He's saying there's going to be a heaven and there's going to be a hell. Some will go to hell, some will go to heaven. So be prepared. Make sure that, that you're ready for that day because if you're not ready for that day, you're in for the surprise of your life. You'll be like a furnace. One of the things our family enjoys doing is setting around a fire and Often in the evenings, we'll end our evening just around a campfire in the backyard. And we have a wood pile. And in this wood pile we have stacked out back is a reminder of what God is saying through Malachi here today. In fact, I pulled a picture up. We were seated by the fire one of the nights. And, and this is kind of the wood pile that's in our backyard. And, and so I went over and I grabbed this piece of wood from our wood pile. And as I was seated there, I believe I was seated that night with Hannah, and they were seated around. It reminded me of this passage, because if you look again at this passage, it says this. All, it says, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant evildoers will be stubble, and the day is coming. will set them, and the, that is coming, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. And I was looking at this wood pile. It's as if all these pieces of wood are just waiting. Eventually, I'll walk up, my family will walk up. At some point or another, we're going to go to that wood pile. We're going to grab a piece of wood, and we're going to toss it in the fire. And it's going to burn. It's as if people are waiting. They don't even know it. They're a wood pile stocked, and they're nothing more than a log. And if they don't get their, their hearts right with Jesus, they're going to be tossed into the fire, and they'll become ashes. And so now when I look at wood piles, I just, you know, even that night I was thinking about this, and I began to think, please, God, please, Lord, I have family members, I have friends, I have people who reject you. Please, God, please, before this day, before this day, before this day, please, I pray that they come to you. And so every time I look at a piece of wood now, it reminds me, listen, I don't want them to be tossed into the fire. Maybe every time you see a wood pile, it'll cause you to pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ. He says, it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So he's saying that there is a place where people who don't know Christ, who haven't trusted in his saving grace, will spend eternity called hell. Hell is a real place. Hell is a literal place, the Bible tells us. In fact, the Bible says a lot about hell. It's not a place where you go with your buddies and your, your friends and you have a party, a continual party. For some, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get for Christians. The reality is this, is that there is a place that you'll go to if you don't know Christ. And, and the Bible records, in fact, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41 calls hell a place of everlasting fire. And so how do you define everlasting? I say, what part of everlasting isn't everlasting? What part of eternal isn't eternal? People often ask me when it comes to salvation, it says, for by grace you are saved through faith, lest not of yourself a man would boast. And then John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if you trust in Jesus and you've given and your faith, by faith believe in him and you receive that gift, listen to me. You are saved for everlasting and eternal. It can never change. What part of everlasting isn't everlasting and what part of the word eternal isn't eternal? You trust in Christ, it's eternal. You trust in Jesus, it's everlasting. You have faith to trust in him by this free gift that can never be taken away from you. It's everlasting, it's eternal. It's the same with hell. A place of everlasting fire never stops. See, we understand that, but some of us struggle with how can it be everlasting salvation? 
Because Jesus said it was. Hebrews chapter 10 and 27 says this about hell. It's a place of raging fire. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43 and 48 says it's a place of unquenchable fire. Revelation 19 and 20 says that it's the lake of fire. Matthew 8 and verse 12 says it's a place of utter darkness. You'll be next to someone else. and You can hear them screaming and moaning because of the pain. And this fire continues to burn and they never die. It's not annihilation. I don't believe in annihilation. It's everlasting. The word of God says everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. It means eternally pain, suffering, anguish, yet you can't see. It's utter darkness. So God will create a fire that doesn't have red flames. How does he do that? I don't know, but he's God. And you don't want to be there. The Bible tells us in Revelation 9-2, it's a bottomless pit. Mark 9 and verse 48 refers to this place being filled with worms. Revelation 14, 10 and 11 says it's a place with no rest, day and night, anguish, suffering, weeping and wailing. Revelation 14, 10 and 11 said it's a place of burning sulfur. And Jesus is saying to us, as God was saying to the Israelites who are God's people, be ready! Don't hold on to the things of earth too much because the day is coming when Christ will put an end to the sin and the suffering and Satan and all his demons in our world. But the flip side is this. There's also this other place. Look what it says. It says, but for you who revere my name, verse 2, the son of what? What's the word? righteousness will rise with what? Healing in its rays. And you will go out. I love this visual image and frolic like well-fed calves. Have you ever seen a calf after it's been hungry and it gets fed and it's been cooped up and, it's, and you're feeding it and you let them go out in the pasture and they jump and they run and they kick? They're happy. It's this picture of I'm hungry, now I'm fed, get out of my way, let me play. And you watch them, they kick and they prance and they're they're satisfied. It's this picture that when we get to heaven, we're going to be like well-fed calves just freely and frolicking all around. It's the picture I've described often about Isaiah when he was little. He's always wanted to be outside. It's as if he needs to live outside. If he can't get outside, it's probably why he loves golf so much. He gets close to the ground. He wants to be outside. And as a kid, even from as soon as he could walk, he would stand at the front door, summer, winter, fall. And and often in the winter, stand there just like as sad as can be, just like waiting for that door to open so he could bolt outside. I have these visual pictures of Isaiah in his one-piece snowsuit as a two-year-old standing there, and he's standing at the door, and he's waiting for us to open. And we opened the door, and he took it out through the front yard, and he just dove in the snow, just frolicking in the snow. It's a picture of free at last, finally. And God said, it's going to be so good that you won't know what to do with you. You'll just be, look at this. <laughs> Instead of the woodpile, It's just waiting to be thrown into the fire pit and to be burned up and turned to wood and ashes and stubble. For the life of me, I really, why wouldn't you choose frolicking like a well-fed calf over the ashes of a fire pit? 
Well, we know the reason because we have an enemy called Satan who blinds the eyes of the believers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. We know because we have an enemy who wars against us, who feeds us lies daily that's saying, don't listen to that, don't believe that. And right now, some of you are hearing that same word from the enemy that says, it can't be the way. Let me tell you, it is that way because the word of God says it is. Talk to anybody who was far from God, who didn't know Christ, who now has a living God living in They will tell you, he is real. And he changed their life. And so God is saying, get ready, get ready. Don't hold on to this stuff too much. You see, well, what will we do in heaven? Well, look what it says in, in verse 2 again. It says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You will do everything in heaven except for sin and all the consequences that come with it. People often say, I've heard guys say this, Pastor Jim, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Pastor Jim, help me. I just can't picture myself 24-7 just singing. I, I don't even like to sing. Pastor Jim, tell me... I, to me, in some, and I understand what they're saying. They're saying, to me, it, it seems boring that all day long. But let me tell you, and I've said this on many occasions, you will continue. It'll be a picture in my mind of what the original Garden of Eden was supposed to look like. Beautiful flowers, and Adam worked the land, and, and Eve came alongside. And I believe when we get to heaven, we'll be in, obviously in our perfect state, that builders will continue to build, that artists will continue to paint. Musicians will continue to, to, to sing and play. And, and homes will, tells us that we have a home. And Jesus said in John 14, I go and prepare a place where when I come again, I'll come and take you to that place. I believe that the things that you long to do on earth will continue. I believe we'll have heavy equipment operators cutting out some new buildings. I believe we'll do the same things, but without the, the drudgery and the encumbrance of sin. A new heaven and a new earth. I love what he says here, that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing and its rays. What does that mean? Here's what that means to us. No more wheelchairs. Praise God. No more eyeglasses. Any amens for that? No more knee braces. No more vitamins or minerals or someone trying to sell them to you. Praise God. No sweating on the brow. No menopause, ladies. Can I have an Amen. No allergies, no dandelions, no abuse, no murder, no Alzheimer's, no cancer, no addiction, no gossip, no criticism, no depression, no more lies. Praise God. And that's just like a tip of the iceberg. Because the sun of righteousness will bring healing to our bodies. And all the cravings of this world will be gone. So God's looking at his kids and saying, be ready, get ready. It's one or two things. Either you trust me and you experience that, or you believe the lies of the enemy and you experience that. So that's the first thing he reminds us. And he closes up with four things. And the next thing he reminds us is found in verse 4. Look what he says. He says, remember the law of my servant who? Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, he's saying, not only shouldn't you hold on to the earth, but secondly, we must elevate the word of God. See, one, sometimes we forget that Satan hates the word of God. Let me tell you one of the reasons why. Because guess what? He goes to the end, he reads, he knows what happens to him. And listen, that's not going to change. And people have asked me, can Satan repent? And I say, no, he can't. Why? Because God records that he doesn't. This is 100% accurate and infallible and errant word of God. And he's saying, read it 
saturate. Go back to the laws of Moses. In that time, that's all they had. Go back and reread Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Read it over. Saturate your mind in it. Get out your smartphones and read it. Be baptized by it. Live it out. Fill yourself up with his word regularly. You see, we forget what it took to get our Bibles here. Some of you, I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible that you hold today and the smartphone app that holds the words of God, people gave their lives for us to have that in our hands. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Some of us have 10, 15 Bibles in our home. We don't even know where they're at, and we don't realize what it took for that Bible to get in your home. Do you realize that in 303 AD, before the completion of the Bible, Diocletian ordered that every Christian book be destroyed. There was word on the street in, in 300 AD that this Bible was, was being written. And Diocletian wanted to put an end to it. He said, we can't have the word of God. No way, don't do it. He says, strike out, get rid of every book that has Christian in it. Just, just knock on the doors, go to the libraries, go to the homes. If you find a book that has anything to do with Christian, get rid of it, destroy it. He tried to get rid of every single writing. He wasn't necessarily concerned about the, the commentaries, but he wanted to get rid of the word of God. Do you realize in 1229 AD, the Catholic Church at the Council of Toulouse forbade the use of the Bible in the layman's hand? They said, we would not interpret it correctly. Let the priests do it. So copies were limited. And so here's the lie that they said. They said somehow we weren't the priesthood of believers. That somehow the Spirit couldn't help us interpret Scripture. That we weren't smart enough. That somehow that only the priests could do it. And so they limited the number of copies. And because the copies were limited, there was a short supply of Bibles. In 1414 A.D., the reading of the English Bible was forbidden. In fact, if you did in 1414 A.D., you lost your home and your life. So if word got out that you were reading the word of God and it got out on the streets in authority, they would come knocking at your house, they would kill you, they would kill your family, they would throw them out in the streets and they would take possession of your home. How many of you would read the word of God today if you knew you lost everything? Some did because they elevated the word of God and they realized this is the spoken word of God. This book I should elevate over every book. Did you realize that in 1539 A.D., King Henry VIII, he was quite a character. He requested that the Pope permit him to divorce his wife. The Pope refused. King Henry responded by marrying his mistress. He did it anyhow. Later, having two of his many wives executed and thumbing his nose at the Pope by renouncing Roman Catholicism, Taking England out of, from under Rome's religious control, he then declared himself as the reigning head of state just to get back at the Pope, which now we know as the Anglican Church. His first act, listen to this, his first act was to defy the wishes of Rome by funding the printing of scriptures in English. The first English Bible was printed out of spite. Isn't that awesome? Here's why it's awesome. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Praise the Lord, huh? It shows us who's ultimately in control. Do you realize in 1382 that John Wycliffe wrote the first handwritten copy of the English Bible? By the way, it took months to do one copy. He wrote the first handwritten copy. With the help of his followers, he produced dozens of others. The Pope was so infuriated with Wycliffe 
that 44 years after Wycliffe had died, he ordered his bones dug up, crushed, and scattered into the river. In 1415 A.D., John Huss carried on the same passion of Wycliffe. He wanted every person to have a Bible in their hand, in their language. So he did everything he could to make that happen. John Huss was burned at the stake with Wycliffe's manuscripts used as kindling to start the fire. You see, he wanted people to have the word of God. And as he burned, they started the fire with Wycliffe's manuscripts that he was writing the word of God with. How many of you would do that? God is saying, get ready. Elevate the word of God. In 1517 AD, seven people burned to the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. In 1455 AD, the printing press by Gutenberg Books allowed books to be mass-produced instead of handwritten. It took months to write one-hand copy, and copies were so hard to find at that time, and now Gutenberg and the, the, the press allowed them to be printed rapidly. Because copies were hard to find during many of the times of the early stages, prophets and priests would burn their copies or bury their worn out because of how sacred they were. Why? Because it contains the hope of glory. It's a valuable possession that you own. And God is saying, please read it. Please, please read it. How many of you have, have made commitments? Oh, I'm going to read God's word. I know I should. And and I should, and I know it's good for me, and I know there's truths in it. How many of you have had good intentions? I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm going to begin to read God's Word. Maybe it's in the New Testament. And, and you wake up that morning, it's like, oh, man, everything in the house is in disarray. The car breaks down. The refrigerator's not working. Your kids are screaming. It's like, that didn't happen yesterday. It's like, all these fires, you know where those fires are? It's Satan. He does not want you to read because he knows what happens when we're saturated the Word of God. We live to our redemptive potential. And so he wants to stop it. You see, you're opposed. Every single time you pick up the word of God, just picture, you're opposed. Like, I can guarantee you weren't opposed when you read the Goshen News today. It didn't happen. You're not opposed when you went to ESPN.com. You weren't opposed. You weren't opposed when you went to CNN.com. You're not opposed by reading any novel. But the second you pick up the word of God, the reason it's so difficult, the reason it's so challenging to stay on track is because every time you try, you're opposed. But listen to me. Greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. And all we have to speak is the name of Jesus, and we can tell Satan and all his little demon cohorts, bye-bye. I'm reading this. And I want to let you know where you're headed, okay? So see ya. You see, some of us, we don't... Walk in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And we can exercise authority over the evil one with our words. I'll never forget the first time I smuggled Bibles into China with a team here from Grace. There was a group of us went to China. We went from Hong Kong to China. And so it was our first team in. It was a great opportunity. We really didn't know what we were in for. But we, would, we, we were in China. We had a missionary connection there. And basically, you took a backpack and had Adidas backpack, and we put Bibles in them. And we did, I packed it as many as I could. And so each day we'd get up, and we'd pray over these Bibles, and we'd say, God, get us to this destination. And we were going to meet this Chinese guy that was in the sixth floor of this hotel in downtown Shenzhen, China, 
We, we, we had no idea. We never met him before. He didn't speak English. All we knew, we we're going to knock on this door, and we we're going to hand him our Bibles, and then we would get out of there. And so we got up, and we prayed, and we prayed over each other, and we prayed God for protection. So all of us got our backpacks, and each day we get up, and we go to the train station. We get on the train, and we were quiet. We divided up. We didn't let people know that we knew each other. You didn't speak to someone, but you, you knew that they were there. And so we spread out on this train. Once we got on the train, we went to the border. There it was, Hong Kong here, China there. And you had to go and take your passport. And as you handed your passport, you looked on the other side. And there were, there were Chinese soldiers standing there with AKs. And you knew you were supposed to take the word of God. But greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. Why, why, why be fearful if God has called you to it? And so we walked in. And then they would, as you walk by, thousands of people walk by every day. And the guard would just randomly, just anybody, you, I want you to scan your stuff. And so you would often pray, Lord, please don't let them pick me out. Lord, make me invisible. Blind their eyes. You prayed every prayer under the sun for protection. After you got through, you went to the other side. It was like, and you go to the other side and you had meeting points. You tell your, your, your team, I'll meet you down by the water fountain. And you'd walk along, but you never made a hand sign. You just kind of turned away. They turned and you all began to walk and go to this hotel. And you get to the hotel, you knock and you give the Bibles. You circle back around two more hours and do the same. One of the evenings, we were invited to an underground church in China. And they gave me an opportunity to preach to this underground church. It was an underground group of people who were meeting in privacy and secrecy. And so they gave them a a, a meeting point that night. Each week, they would have a different place so that the authorities couldn't find them. In their case, if a national in China, in certain provinces of China, if they were found with the Bible in their hand, they could be thrown into jail for the rest of their lives. It was that... Chinese look at the Bible as pornography. They think it's going to taint the minds of their people, and so they don't want their people to be influenced. So we were invited to this university. We didn't know where we were going, so we finally got there, and we walk into this room, and they were there way before we got there, and the Bibles were in their hands, and I saw these Chinese students. It was as if they had gold in their hands. Every single one of our team members, we just wept. We walked into that room. I just felt this uncontrolling weeping. I just, it was the presence of God was so heavy in that room. And then I was saying, oh, yeah, Lord, now I'm supposed to talk? It's just not going to happen. But I saw them value the word of God in such a way that I've never seen in my life. And it gave me such a new, fresh love for the word of God. And God is saying to us today, and he's saying to you the same way, elevate this above everything. Listen, every book that you ever read, read this. Your top 10 list, make this number one. And before you read anything else, read this first. Because the day is coming. And if you don't read the truth, you'll be twisted by the lies of the world and the culture is trying to scream at you. Third thing he tells us. Look what he says. He says this in verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Elijah, Elijah's a prophet. He's telling you, you need to repent before that day comes. You need, you need to make sure that you, 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 you've asked Christ to be the Lord of your life. And if you do know Christ, you need to turn around and go in a different direction. Why Elijah? Like, how does Elijah, why, why did he say prophet Elijah? Because if you study the Old Testament, you know that Elijah, he never physically died. And we know in Scripture that man is destined to die once. He never died. It says, Scripture says he just took this chariot right into heaven. Rich Mullins wrote a song about that. He just kind of wrote it right into heaven. He never died. He never died of physical death, Elijah. But if you also read Scripture in the New Testament, it says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 30, the Mount of Transfiguration, you know who was there? Elijah was there. He met with Jesus. 
I believe, as many theologians and commentators do, that Elijah will come back and he will prophesy. And, and it, it is before that dreadful day of the second coming of Christ. In fact, look with me in Revelation chapter 11 quickly. Last book of the New Testament. Keep your finger in the last book of the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 11. It says, this, this is during the second half of the tribulation. This, there's, three, there's seven years of tribulation. I believe this is during the second half of that, the last three and a half years. And it says this in verse, chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for how many months? 42, it's three and a half years, the second half of the, of, the, of the tribulation. I will appoint my two what? What's the word? Witnesses. I believe one of them is Elijah. And they will prophesy. And they will say, repent, repent, repent for 1260 days. Right before that dreadful day, the second coming of Christ. They are the olive trees, the two lampstands. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague they want. Then in verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and it will power them. And then we know soon after that, the dreadful day, the second coming of Christ takes place. And so Malachi is saying from God, listen, a prophet will come and he's going to say, repent, 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 repent. And his name is Elijah. But before that dreadful day takes place, he's saying to you and I, repent. You see, once you trust in Jesus, you are no longer who you were, even on your worst day. And praise God for that. But he reminds us of this, that if we have walked away or walking in sin, we must repent. What's it mean to repent? Let's unpack that word, maybe in a different way today, or a fresh way today, I should say. In order to repent, we must be broken to the point we drop our defenses long enough to look to God and call out help. This condition is called repentance. It's this moment where we understand the gravity of sin. It's this moment where the Spirit is convicting us, and we realize, I can't do anything about my sin. And we cry out to God, and we say, God, please help me do something with this sin. Repentance requires us to take an honest evaluation of our spiritual condition. And by the way, keep this in mind. Repentance is not man-up religious bluffing that we're so familiar with and tried before without any life change. Oh, yeah, God, I'll turn around. I won't do that no more. No, I, I promise, God, I won't do it again. And the next day, there we are again. Oh, yeah, God, I promise I won't do that again. Oh, yeah, God, I promise. Oh, yeah, and you, oh, it's just this religious bluffing back and forth. It's not that. It's a brokenness with our sin. It's an understanding that we, we, we've sinned against a holy God. Repentance isn't doing something about my sin. It's admitting I can't do anything about my sin. And the only person who can do anything is Jesus Christ. It's trusting that only God can cleanse me of my sin. By the way, on a personal level, every single time that there's been, I feel like, been true repentance in my life or someone's life, or I've seen it happen corporately, there's always been tears. I believe there's some tears attached. It's a real brokenness of the soul. It's the soul weeping over sinning against the God. I can tell you times in my life I've been driving down the road after committing a sin and, and then confessing it and just feeling 
broken over. And just, I, I, there's been times I've been alone in my office or at home or, or out running, and all of a sudden the heaviness and the, the, the weight of, uh, and, uh, of, of, of sinning against my God and just asking for, for, for forgiveness of this, that I've just been broken to the point of tears. True repentance in my mind has tears attached to it. It's not this, oh, God, I'm sorry, okay, I won't do it again. And the next day, there, oh, oh, God, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. It's a brokenness of the soul. You see, we've been told repentance is a promise to God that I'm going to stop the sin, and I'm sorry, and I won't do it again this time, and I mean it. That's what we've been told. But we are mistaking repentance for remorse. The intention is not to sin. It's not the same as the power not to sin. You see, Paul, by the way, this is where this nugget of truth, like when I came across this, it's just powerful, and it struck me. I don't even remember when. But Paul calls repentance a gift from God. That just changes repentance. In fact, read later if you can, 2 Timothy 2.25. It says that repentance is a gift from God. He gives us repentance. He gives us repentance. It's his gift to us. It's his gift to pull us out of that miry place of sin. It's like we can't manufacture the repentance and cleanse our sin. He says, here, I'll give you this gift of repentance. It's not something you can drum up on your own by being really sorry. But it's God's gift that says, God, I can't, you can, and I trust you. I trust the work of the cross. Thus, sin is resolved. And we are cleansed. By the way, no amount of promises or right behavior will ever cleanse us. Only Jesus can do that. And so he's calling for repentance. He says, their day will come and prophet will come. On that dreadful day, be ready because he's coming. By the way, any prophet like Elijah, any prophet out there who speaks truth, anybody right now that has anything to say about Bruce Jenner, what happens to them? They're met with resistance. Why? Because truth and repentance is always met with resistance. Why? Because Satan hates repentance. And he hates truth. Yet the highest virtue in the Bible, I believe, is repentance, not tolerance. You come to Jesus just as you were, and you are changed. You come to Jesus as you are, but you don't stay as you were. God's final word to us is repentance, not tolerance. So don't confuse the two. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing, like, this is just awesome in light of what we're, graduation we're celebrating today. Look at, look at verse 4. And if I were to translate it, a literal translation, and most translations, majority translate it this way. Look at verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers, the best translation is fathers, to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with total destructions. And so he's saying, look, look, this is like even God, at the end of the Old Testament, he's looking, he said, the last thing he's going to say, the last word that he has for his people for 400 years, he says this, fathers, get with it now. The last word. It's to speak to fathers and children. Turn your hearts to your fathers. Listen, the way your children will turn their hearts to the fathers is that their fathers are turning their hearts to God. He said the heart of the man is the control center. He says either we get it right, fathers, or he'll strike our land with total destruction. And by the way, look at any family where the father's not living for God. Look at any community where dad has absent. 
I will show you a land that's been struck with the destruction of God. Because culture is leading it instead of a godly man standing up and saying, uh-uh, 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 not on my watch. It's not happening on this street. Recently, one of the areas that we love to run in, my wife and I, uh, Benton Spillway, was recently reported that there was, it's supposed to be like the hookup area for men and other men. And so Ann and I, we, we, as we run, we pray. We pray, uh-uh, it's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen here. In fact, my wife said this, listen, they're not taking my running path. I'm praying. I'm not letting God let it happen here. It's someone standing up and saying, uh-uh, not on my watch. And it's, he's saying, fathers, not on your watch. Don't let it happen. The last words of the Old Testament is God going after the man, the dads. And he's saying, I love you too much, dads, to let you live this way. You must lead your families. Otherwise, it is total destruction if dad don't love their kids and the kids don't love their dads. If we don't turn the tide with righteousness, boldness, and courage, then our land will be struck. You see, dads can do what institutions and governments and organizations can never do, especially a godly dad. He is saying men that call themselves Christ followers should look different than the world. You should treat your girlfriends different than someone who doesn't know Christ. You should stay pure. You should tenderly lead her. You should be a, a father that, that loves his kids, who tenderly leads his wife, who stands in the marketplace and looks different, not weird, different. So some of you single guys are like, well, Pastor Jim, I'm not a father. How can I cultivate a father's heart? Like, okay, I'm glad this isn't me. I'm not dad. Well, here's what he's saying. You can cultivate a father's heart. You know how? You surround yourself with some kids. You serve somewhere where there's children. In fact, you serve at Grace Community Church in the children's ministry. You cannot spend time with kids without wanting all of a sudden to see this kid who comes from a broken home, maybe a single parent home, and he doesn't have a dad. He doesn't even know how to wear his ball hat. You become a coach in the little league system or, or football systems or high school systems where a kid comes along, he doesn't know how to wear his hat, and you tenderly come to him and say, hey, dude, this is how you wear your hat. You know why he doesn't know how to wear his hat? Because he hasn't had a father. You begin to see the pain of, of, of children who don't have a dad, and you begin to read to them once a week. You join the clubs here in Goshen where men go and read for one hour a week to children who don't have fathers. You become a big brother. You surround yourself, and you become a very good uncle with your nieces and nephews. You just don't say, hey, that's my niece and nephew. You stop by the house because you're their uncle, and you find out how a kid ticks. And what, know what will happen to you? All of a sudden, you'll have this caring, and all of a sudden, and you'll feel this protection that you didn't know was inside of you. All of a sudden, you want to see them grow up and to be world changers. And you all of a sudden, they're not even my kids. You know why? Because you're cultivating a father's heart. You don't have to be a daddy to have a father's heart because it's already in you, but you can't be a daddy unless you're around kids. And God is saying we must choose a good legacy over a good time. I would even say this. I would go so far as to say this. You don't have to agree with me, but I I believe I could prove this in Scripture. Because this is so important. And because when you get married, two become one. That the heart of the mother 
and the heart of the father must be on track to Jesus Christ in such a way that they both care for the kids because if the parents aren't caring for the kids, then then the family can't be changed. And so I would even say, dude, single dudes, listen to me. Make sure when you marry this woman that she has a heart for kids too. Even if you can't have kids, make sure she has a heart for kids so that you can cultivate, you can make your home. You might not have children, but listen to me. You could sell, you could sell snowballs or you could make your house a place where kids gather. You could love on them and you could volunteer, but make sure the wife that you're about to marry has a heart for kids too, because God wants you to have a, a father's heart and you can't have a father's heart unless you're around kids. You see, the most important decision you will ever make is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The second is marriage, if God would move you in that direction. And that decision has generations of implications for good and bad. You see, when I looked at Anne, I also saw, not only did I see this beautiful woman inside and out who loved Jesus Christ, I also saw this nurturer. Like, like she makes up for my one compassion that I have. She, she adds to it. And she adds it. She, she nurtures the children, our children. And she adds what I can't add. She creates an, a place of refuge, this home that, that I can't do. And when I was looking at her, I had in mind, I wonder what kind of mom she will be. And I was right. <laughs> you see, some of you guys don't even choose that. You don't even consider that. You're like, well, she's hot. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Hell is too. And you might want to rethink your plan. That's funny. But it's truth. And here's what I know as a father. Even as your kids age, you never stop being their daddy. Never. Some of you are grandparents, grandfathers. You see your kids and you watch the grandkids go... And you are so proud. And you're always trying to figure out how you can protect them and care for them and guide them as much as they'll allow you to. You never stop being a daddy until you die or they die. That's what a father's heart is. God's last words of the Old Testament that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Listen, if you get the man, you get the family. If you get the family, you get the community. If you get the community, you get the world for Jesus. So Malachi is saying to us today, from the words of a father to his children, we need brave men, bold men, courageous men. We need men who are willing to risk it all for Jesus. We need men who will read their Bibles. We need men who will hold the hands of their wives and tenderly lead them. We need men who seek forgiveness. We need men who speak boldly in the marketplace for Jesus. We need men who will not divorce their wives. We need dependable, trustworthy, noble, tender men. We need men whose yeses are yeses and noes are noes. We need men who are unashamed to call themselves Christ fathers, then live it out. We need men who will not retreat, back down, or walk away from anything Satan brings this way, but fearlessly stand and fight for the brothers, sister, wives, and homes. We need godly men, then and only then will we see this generation one for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Oh God, this is a good word, Lord. All your word is good. 
but this is a good word for us today. Help us to realize that everything we have on earth is temporary. Help us to elevate the word of God. Help us to repent of our sins. And help us as fathers to chase after you and get it right now. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful picture that will be. Like, when the rapture occurs, what a grand celebration that could be. Is a nation turning to you. And so when we fly away, God, it would be a beautiful picture. And that's what you desire. But until then, God, please, convict us, challenge us, provoke us. Let brothers and sisters sharpen us. And may we get this world ready for Jesus Christ's return. Amen.